good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking buzzed cut Chucky. We're talking red high heel shoes. And we're talking Andy's no good, very bad dating life. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking Tiffany, uh, mm-hmm. Jennifer Tilly, uh, ah, damn it, even I lose track. Ah, uh, so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everyone. We are discussing the seventh installment in the Child's Play franchise, Cult of Chucky, which was, of course, I'm going to call it an essential backdoor pilot into the TV series Chucky, which is having its second season premiere in just a week on October 5th. Mm-hmm. This is very true. It's an interesting film in that regard. Obviously, we're into like the direct video realm of Chucky. And I think we've got a lot of questions, Trace. So many questions about this particular property. I know. I have so many questions, so many things I want to talk about and praise and discuss. So I think I think we need the creator of the franchise in here. Um <laughs> Oh my god. Ah, everyone, he is the creator of the Child's Play franchise, having written all seven Chucky films and directing Seed, Curse, and Cult of Chucky, the fifth, sixth, and seventh installments in the franchise, in case you were not familiar. He is also the creator of Sci-Fi's Chucky TV series, which will be having, as I said, its second season premiere in just a week. (laughs) Please welcome Don Mancini. Hello, guys. I'm here to answer all your Cult of Chucky questions. (laughs) Oh, my God. Thank you. No, we're going to be doing the whole franchise, but you get a lot of Cult of Chucky questions very often? Um, not recently, no. I don't think. I mean, more like on the run up to season one of the show, because right. as you as you just alluded to, the movie, you know, it directly leads into the to the show. But um, not recently, actually. So so I'm happy to talk about it. I you like it? You got? <laughs> I, I assume. <laughs> I mean, although that would have been that would have been interesting. You just lure me here. We just wanted to tell you, like, what Don? What happened? Oh God! <laughs> I could imagine someone doing that. It would be such a fucking dick move. But no, we're actually uh, big fans of both this one as well as Curse, recognizing that they're sort of different birds of a feather compared to some of the other entries in the franchise but that's also one of the reasons we love the whole franchise because each film sort of does its own thing yeah i have a short attention span (laughs) well but i mean look i i know that this is something that gets brought up about the franchise a lot but it's it's so rare it might be the only franchise that is still like in its exact same incarnation albeit you know going through tonal shifts and whatever but since its inception in 1988, um, and I, I, I don't know, I have such a respect for you in this franchise for a not giving up because I'm really, I'm really intrigued for these, um, these periods in these major shifts between, let's say, three and Bride, and between Seed and Curse, and then moving on from Cult to the Show of how, I, I, from an outside perspective, I'm like, wow, this franchise could have ended based on all of this, and it just you kept going, and I'm so grateful for that. Oh, yes. Um. Well. A lot of that I would have to give some I'd have to give a lot of credit to David Kirshner mm-hmm. because you know, after Seed of Chucky didn't do well 
you know, we we just kind of went into a fallow period. Right. And I think he I think he ultimately just thought like, okay, well, we can make a direct to video movie there, you know, even though it was sort of it it stung in a way and it sort of felt like being demoted to the minor Mm -hmm. leagues or something. Right. But I think, you know, Dave is sort of like you know, assented to doing that for my benefit, really. Because <laughs> I sort of like, uh-huh. it, you know, I had more to gain from that than he did, I guess. Right. Um, so he was very cool about that. And I, you know, I think he's happy that we did that because those movies, you know, in their sphere and their smaller sphere, they did do well. And, you know, we're proud of the work we did on them. And it helped keep it alive. I mean, one of the interesting things for us is uh, particularly when we think about how you sort of, I don't want to say seize control because you never gave up control. Like you're the writer on all of these movies, as Trace said, but it really feels like in between three and four, like when you come back with Bride, it feels like you're coming back and saying, you know what, this shit is really queer now. And I'm going to start embracing that and being unapologetic about it yeah i mean a big part of that honestly it was about just finding a way to keep it fresh and you know i had to start with myself you know how do i keep it fresh for myself what am i going to write about because i'd already felt like we were falling into repetition with child's Mm -hmm. play three so it really was the motivation was less (laughs) less socially social activism and more like, how do I make this interesting? And so I decided, you know, let's just gay it up. I mean, even, but just even the notion, the title, Ride of Chucky, it's gay. So it's like, I felt a certain responsibility <laughs> to our ancestors is not the right word. Forebearers. There, there we go. go. P- p- yeah. <laughs> the pave, the path makers, pave makers or whatever. Yeah. You know, Bride of Frankenstein was super gay. So it just, it felt, it felt right. It felt right. And, and again, it just, it allowed it to be, have it, have a new identity. And I wrote it for Jennifer and, you know, knowing that, you know, that alone, that right there, you know, made the movie very gay. And so, (laughs) you know, and so I said, okay. And then when I was putting the story together and we knew we wanted to have teenage protagonists and to do, and and I knew that it was going to be on a certain level, a love story or a parody of love stories, romantic comedies and such. So I knew I wanted it to be about love. And so you have the star-crossed lovers at the center of the, of the story, but then you have to have the other characters, you know, the friends. And I just thought, well, their friends should be gay. And so, you know, it's just another way of looking at love. But I think even more important than that was casting Jennifer and casting Alexis Arquette and John Ritter. And, you know, there were just, there's a lot of, gay energy (laughs) in that movie that um i yeah it seemed like it brought it new life i actually because i'm speaking for joe here because i know joe that the character of david held a lot of um oh uh, he was huge for me he was so important to my coming out it felt like one of the first times i saw an unapologetically queer man in a mainstream horror film like david was massive for me oh i love hearing that 
that's so great. And Gordon would be very happy to hear that as well. I mean, it didn't hurt that he was a super cutie as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He, um, yeah, he, he was fantastic in that role. You know, he's very likable. And in any iteration of Chucky, no matter how crazy it gets, and it often gets quite crazy, you have to mm-hmm. kind of remind at some point, remind the audience that there are, are real stakes. And you, and right. so, you know, you want it occasionally to sting. And, and I knew that it would be interesting to the verge of controversial to kill mm-hmm. that character. Oh, yeah, you broke my heart with that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's so funny though because I mean, look, I think I don't want to say like you get a pass because you were a gay writer killing off this gay character. But I do think that we live in a world today though where some people, if you weren't a gay man writing this gay character and killing him in such a let's say brutal way where he gets exploded by yes. an eighteen wheeler truck, <laughs> <laughs> some people might be like, hmm, that's a little homophobic. But it's like, no, 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 no. Gay, men, gay men can kill gay men. It's totally fine. <laughs> no, well, I just I feel like cute straight teenagers have been getting slaughtered in horror movies for decades. So mm-hmm. why not cute gay boys? It's what equality demands. Well, I think that's what happens in the horror genre in general, right? Like, I mean, you know, we have, we have talks about misogyny and you know how the genre like like it really focuses on the, the torture and pain of women, and you know we kind of. But now that we are in this era of queer horror, which by the way, Don, like you're a big part of why that exists it's horror like you gotta kill people you can't just let everyone live exactly (laughs) exactly bad things happen to good people including britney spears why that that is one i do regret in in retrospect because and that is something i wouldn't do but honestly at the time i just i just felt like well getting killed by chucky that's fun and cool right i I, mean i was i was fairly unaware of her situation at that oh actually i think most people were i think we a lot of us were yeah i don't like i can't remember how public or 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 even at what point in her life and career she was if what was going on but i certainly had no awareness that she you know had you know certain real problems in her life but anyway i like i certainly would hate to think that anyone would feel like that i that something like that would make britney spears feel bad because i that was certainly not the intention it's more like oh how cool i mean if you know if someone fictionally killed me i would love it <laughs> fictionally <Yeah. laughs> no i mean i i think nowadays it doesn't look as good but at the time i think we were all like oh isn't this funny you know chucky is He's very much on the up and up in terms of like who is a celebrity that would it would be really deeply amusing to see this person get killed by this little doll. I think nowadays we look at it at the film and say, oh, I'm actually more intrigued by John Waters being killed in this movie because that is such a great cameo. Yeah, he was fantastic and fun to work with and very helpful to me in a lot of ways too, alleviating my first time director anxiety. So how did you transition from the writing then to directing for Seed? Because this is the last theatrical entry. Was it kind of like you saying, hey, I've earned this now, like, please give this to me? Kind of. I mean, I, it's, I had wanted to be a director from the beginning. I mean, I wanted to be a writer as well. Being a writer was not merely a means to an end at all. 
but I knew that that was a valid path to getting there. And so I was in a, you know, a, a happy situation, a lucky situation to, you know, have this ongoing franchise. I, I wanted to direct Bride, but David and the studio, Universal, just they felt you're not quite ready or they right. weren't quite ready to trust me with that. Yes. But, you know, I did, you know, sort of take on new responsibilities. And I, you know, I was a producer on that movie. I direct, and I directed the second unit. So, and so that, uh, okay. and, and, you know, there's so there, like, even like the end of that movie, the whole thing with the cop and Catherine Heigl and Nick Stabile, you know, that last scene. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the seat of Chucky getting him i directed that whole scene i directed i directed the kathy and jimmy scene i directed oh, okay. the montage of tiffany's makeover i directed that oh, do you know how iconic that is even when we did it and then when we got the rights to the song um it was really thrilling because it's just like ah this is good i i had an inkling yes. that that was a, a good idea yeah Anyway, so it was after having done that, and and then also in post, Ronnie Yu, the amazing director of that movie, he had to go back to Hong uh, to Sydney, where his home was. Right. And I, I forget why there was some kind of immigration issues or something. So I I basically took on the mantle of director in post of that movie and oversaw. You know, everything, you know, as you do in post with editing and sound and music, music score or color, and the effects, all of that. So since the movie was successful, then I was finally in a position and, you know, to ask. And they said, OK, we're ready. And, you know, wrote the script and then it languished in development hell for several years. Was that in part because of the content? Because I feel like a lot of people and by which I'm using air quotes on traditional or normal because they're all the boring straight folks. (laughs) And they say, oh, this series is okay until four, and then five is when it really goes off the rails. And for queer audiences who have reappropriated seed, who have discovered its madcap uh, campy wonders, like there is so much to love and appreciate about this film. But I feel like for a traditionally minded studio, they probably looked at this and said, wait, there's a trans kid in here. Or like we're exploring non-binary issues at a time when non-binary wasn't really even a popular term. Like, did you get pushback from people about that script? Yes. The line from the studio on the first draft was it's too gay and it has <sighs> t- and it has too much Jennifer Tilly. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, it's confusing. It's like, because it's like, I pitched it, you know, I pit, I pitched the entire concept and, you know, this happens sometimes and, you know, you deliver substantially, or at least from my perspective, I delivered the script was substantially what I pitched. So I don't like, right. well, too much in fertility. We pitched it to be <laughs> the lead character. So, you know, but yes, I thought, I think it was a bit much for them but then also Columbine happened and oh. and then, you know, Hollywood sort of responded to that by suddenly not wanting to support, you know, violent movies that have young people. 
that was the double whammy that that sent that project into development hell. But then it got resurrected a couple of years later when Ronnie's Freddy versus Jason movie opened. Because this was like, like you know, because that was like the represented, you know, a resurrection of a franchise. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, Ronnie invited me to the premiere and I called Jennifer and I said, you should come with me to this and do the red carpet thing and you know we should you know be present there right you know i was being very strategic about it and 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 just like also hoping but also counting on the likelihood that that movie was going to have a big opening weekend and that would change our fortunes and it happened it played out exactly as we had hoped because literally the following that next week universal Wow. You know, so, okay, let, let's do it. Time to do another Chucky movie. And they oh, wanted shit. to get it going as quickly as possible. And so they of already had the script. <laughs> and because they had dollar signs in their eyes. But it was several years later. So it wasn't the same people at Universal. Yeah, you know, in fact, Rogue, we, right? we went to Rogue, which was, was really focus features. I mean, they just had this, uh, for a brief time, this separate label as Miramax did. You know, they had... Um, Dimension dimension for their mm-hmm. genre stuff but it's not like it was a different company it's just the same so it was it focus at the time was headed by a guy named david lindy who a couple of years before had been head of this outfit called good machine which was responsible for releasing bride in europe and bride did very well overseas so he he was a chucky supporter basically was so what i know you had the script already very soon after bribe was done uh had come out so was it always the i'm gonna say the harsh tonal shit because i think bride has a pretty good blend like a split of horror and comedy but cena Chucky is very much more of a this is a comedy first and foremost was that already there pre-columbine or did you maybe add, did you add more of that post-columbine to lighten it up no it was there from the beginning i mean because i i wanted to make as big a tonal shift from bride as we had done coming out of child's play three into bride and i didn't want to repeat bride i mean bride you know has those kids katherine heigl and nick stabile in in much the same way that the the tv show works the kids ground everything or or they ground an aspect of the story, you know, in a kind of naturalism. And, and so the movie touches the ground now and then. But I didn't want to do that again and see it. I didn't, you know, and we could have. It could have been, you know, another group of, of kids, you know, sort of naturalistically written and portrayed kids. Right. But I thought, no, let's do something really different. At the same time, I just wanted to work with Jen again because she right. was so great in Bride. And my favorite part of the movie was the first half hour when she was in the movie physically. And I loved working with her. And I and so I, you know, that all of this is why I ended up doing, <laughs> you know, doing the West Craven's <laughs> New Nightmare thing. And it's like, okay, you're going to play yourself and it takes place in Hollywood. And Tiffany is your biggest fan and she goes okay sign me up and as Jennifer herself likes to say you know the very first draft that one that they said is too gay and had too much Jennifer Tilly was also much like her character was even more 
brittle and shrill. She was Oh really? She, yeah, just like there were there were moments in Seed of Chucky where, you know, she she comes off as fundamentally nice and she <laughs> never did in the script. Like wow. and, and that was intentional. I mean, it and I and we both thought it was funnier. I mean, we both wanted, you know, Jennifer Tilly in quotes to be this crass, narcissistic, desperate aging actress. <laughs> and we thought that that was, would be really funny. Uh, like one example is you remember the character of the chauffeur. Yes. Right. You know, who throughout is rehearsing his, you know, wants to tell her that he loves her, you know, and in the movie, get it, he's about to say it. And then he gets stabbed and he's like, <laughs> it's the last words. Did she say it? Say it. And he just dies. Well, in the first draft, and again, this is emblematic of how the first draft worked. What happens is he gets stabbed and he ma manages to sputter out as his dying words, Jennifer, I love you. And she goes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, because I want to go back to the, the studio. I mean, I, okay, the two gay, I can quote unquote understand because it's 2004, 2005, like whatever. I guess at the time, 98. What is the too much Jennifer Tilly? Like, did they, did they think that maybe like m m mainstream audiences weren't as familiar with her so thus it wouldn't be as marketable like what where did that come from i don't think it was an, a, a familiarity issue i just think it was a tonal issue i think what they were really saying was where's chucky no no because i think you know chucky's all over that movie and tiffany and glenn i mean that movie has by far the biggest puppet content what? it was more tonal i think you know it was it was too camp and I, and you know, I, like, I get it. I, that's a, that's not an unvalid perspective. I mean, it's certainly, you could argue that the box office of the movie bore that out. You know, maybe it was right. too camp for mainstream audiences. Although it seems to have, I mean, it's, it's the movie that we dine out on the most, it seems to me. <laughs> I mean, the one, the one that has had a certain, you know, a certain, lasting impact in other aspects of our culture. I think, too, I mean, look, because the, the 2000s in horror were a period of, um, especially post 9-11, it was a very, like, nihilistic time. So we were getting, you know, we had the torture porn. We had a lot of remakes of slashers that were much more bloody and violent than usual. And mm -hmm. I think that a lot of audiences, not just mainstream, but horror, weren't really embracing camp. Yeah. Which I do think we are finding that now. Um, I right. think that camp is much more attractive to people. And I don't know why that is, per se, but I think that that's why the film has had more of a reappraisal because I think for the longest time it was everyone's least favorite entry in the franchise but now you have all these people going back and be like no there's a lot of interesting things going on in this silly little movie yeah and I, but I think it's also it just it wasn't scary enough I think right and, and I and I think that that was part of the studio's concern as well and you know and that's legit and I and I actually think that the final movie wasn't scary enough. I don't disagree with that. I would have liked it to be scarier. But it but it's funny. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's it's stupid, but like in a good way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's goofy. But you know, I love comedy as much as I love horror. So I like I enjoy being able to dip into that well you know well i i think even i mean look so that the seed was the first child's play movie that i saw in theaters because i would have been uh, 16 at the time on a first viewing my teenage self i was very much like a what 
is this <laughs> type mm-hmm. thing. And I rewatched it, you know, uh, I think around the time Curse came out because I was doing a binge of the franchise and there was so much more that I caught in it. And also, I mean, again, you're putting a genderqueer character in a film in 2005, yes. which, I mean, again, my young self, I, I didn't really understand the significance or importance of that, but that's a real trailblazing move, especially for the mm-hmm. horror genre. Thank you. Again, it was, the motivation was, it was more creative and more i how do i make it new and interesting how do we do something different with this um that was really the the main thing that led me (laughs) to do that movie genuine question is is the reaction to seed of chucky why we have not seen glenn or glinda since then um i know we're getting them in season two because they're in the trailer so that's not a spoiler or was is has that been more of a creative decision since then no it was very much uh the first thing you said (laughs) For (laughs) for quite a while glenn and glenda were kind of banished and I even, in Cult, I had a scripted, and I think we shot it, a mention of Glenn and Glenda that Uh the studio made me cut. Really? Wow. Even for a direct-to-video sequel, they're like, cut that? Yeah. Wow. And they also were very squeamish about the notion of Tiffany moving around in the world as Jennifer Tilly. (laughs) <laughs> really but that's one of the funniest parts of course of course and you know but that was just us you know the the people we were making that movie with they they just didn't get that but fortunately you know everyone at ucp and usa and sci-fi mm-hmm. they they are way into it and we do it a lot in the show well, so I think, okay, so then moving on from Seed to your direct-to-video sequels, Curse and Cult, I think what was so refreshing about Curse is everyone's expectations were rock bottom for that movie, not just because it was coming after Seed, which again, at the time, wasn't the most well-received movie ever, but also because, yeah, you're taking this theatrical franchise and taking a direct-to-DVD, and I mean, I, the reception for that movie was at least for me, like above and beyond anything I could have imagined. And it was a really, really good movie. And it's like, it's kind of a thing where it's like, you didn't have to go that hard and you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I was thrilled to have the opportunity to make another movie. And, and right. again, I, I owe David Kirshner a lot for that. Um, but I, you know, as strategic as, you know, or I thought I was being strategic in, in taking the series into the realms of camp, just as strategically with Curse, I I very consciously said, I am making a horror movie now. You know, whereas I didn't, you know, with Seed, I felt I was making a comedy. And with Curse, I very deliberately wanted to go in the other direction. And I wanted to flex other, you know, director muscles with that movie and just do more visual storytelling. One of the things about Seed of Chucky that I'm like, that, I'm personally disappointed in what, and and partly it was a result of, there was just, you know, so much puppet stuff in that movie. I won't go into too many details, but it resulted in just like, I I wasn't able to move the camera as much as I would have liked, you know, just putting, you know, having extended conversations that go on for pages and pages between three puppets. It's not easy to do. And, you know, it's very painstaking and takes a lot of time. And and so it was just putting that on screen and making the puppets credible and making you believe they're alive and all of that. I, I had my hands full 
doing that, particularly as a first-time director, I guess. So I, I, with Curse, I wanted to be visually impressive. It was that was something that was very important to me because I that is a, a an interest I have in genre. It's one of the reasons I like the horror genre. I, you know, I'm there are different subcategories of horror, of course, and there are movies like. Texas Chainsaw Massacre or whatever that, you know, have a very different vibe and aesthetic, you know, they're quite deliberately gritty or whatever, but that's while I, you know, as a fan, I like seeing movies like that, but as a creative person, I'm, my personal interest as a writer director in horror is I want to do some things that are operatic and beautiful. And I find that where horror and beauty meet, I find that very interesting. It's like two different colors that you're painting, you know, and they're, and they're very, they're, there's just like, I forget, I don't know if this is an Argento thing, but I, some director like that, I remember reading somewhere that like the epitome of a certain kind of horror is the face, a beautiful face that is just defiled slightly, you know, just like a beautiful face with a slash of blood across it or something. That would sound like Argento. Yeah. There's just something, there's an energy to that. And, you know, and I know it's an oversimplification, but I also think just as gay guys, I mean, I think as a tribe, we tend to be attracted to beautiful things and a beautiful presentation and operatic stuff and all of that. And I wanted to do that with curse. Well, so it, it, I, I'm glad you mentioned it. You you didn't have like as much camera work in Seed of Chucky because of all the puppets, but you also got a smaller budget for both both Curse and Cult of Chucky compared to the 12 million that Seed had. How was that? Did you find that more? I don't know, limiting. I, I mean, I, I know it is limit literally limiting because it's 10 million dollars less. But did you, did you? I don't know. Did it force you to be more creative? I guess in how you were approaching things. Uh yeah. You just have to. You know, $5 million, which is what the budgets for both Curse and Cult were, it's not nothing. You just have to be smart about how you spend it. And so I just knew that we had to build it differently from the ground up. It had to, be, you know, obviously had to be smaller in scale. I, you know, I love movies that take place in one setting. I find that fascinating. I love Dial M for Murder and Rear Window and Lifeboat and Rope. I, I love that, uh, the challenge of that. And, and, and we, so we just created a story where it's like, okay, this is a subgenre, the old dark house movie. So it all takes place <laughs> in one house over one stormy night as people start getting picked off. Another James Whale reference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and of course, you also moved the action to Canada. So you shot these two direct-to-video films in Winnipeg. Which, well, we had done Bride uh, in Toronto as well, though. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, because C was in Romania. Right. So then we went back to Canada, to Winnipeg for Curse and Cult. Yeah, which, which is great. So Curse... Great, by the way. Let's move on to Cult. So there's a there's a four year gap between those films. Now, would, did you have a sequel deal in place? Like, was was Cult a guaranteed go ahead when Curse came out, or was it a let's see what what happens with this kind of a thing? It was the latter. Yeah, it was the latter. Let's see what happens, and it did you know very well. And they wanted to put it into development immediately, but for 
various reasons that I can't get into, um, that got delayed. But they wanted to go immediately. But for other reasons, it just got delayed. But, you know, so we got around to it after a couple of years. And was the intention always to do another direct-to-video or was it going to go theatrical? The thing is, with what was frustrating with Curse like once they started testing the movie and it was testing well, and then we did a couple of festivals and we won a couple of awards. So then they saw like, oh, well, maybe, we maybe right. And so they kind of briefly flirted with it. But again, for reasons I won't you know, go into, it just, it, it ultimately wasn't worth the financial investment to them. Because I okay. think, you know, certain people had deals in place that if it went theatrical, then, you know, certain financial incentives kick in. Right. Okay. That made them ultimately averse to it. So it was frustrating because we felt like, oh, the, it, people like the movie and maybe uh-huh. it could do well in theaters, but it didn't happen. And then they did exactly the same thing to us with Cult. You know, sort of dangled okay. the carrot. Oh, yeah, maybe we'll release it in some theaters. And it's like, yeah, but no, they don't. So, but again, I don't I don't have any bitterness about that at all because I, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> no, like, no, so no, happy no, to be, have well, been able to make the movies and that people like them. I, I'm going to assume the, the things that we're not going to talk about, which is totally fine, it, in case for our listeners who don't know what that is referring to. It actually had nothing to do with the remake. Oh, no. Okay. no. No, no, no. It was no. It was just certain people involved with the movie wanted mm. more money, you know. And it took it. a while to make their deals, mm, <laughs> you know. Right. And you know that shit can go on for years. I feel like people forget that it's a business, which is funny, of course, because our next question is kind of like, oh, okay. Well, let's come back to the narrative because one of the things I'm most interested about is the sort of stopping and starting in these gaps in between the films. But they're all, as Trace said off the top, they're all part of the same universe. Like you never retcon things. Well, I mean, some things I think you set aside and then you come back to, or like you say, you know, Alice not the most interesting character, so we'll have her as a dream in this one. But then that's it. But I'm intrigued by how much of this do you decide to stay open-ended or do teases at the end of a film, knowing that you may not have the opportunity to flesh that out because you may not get another kick at the can. Like, was that ever in the back of your mind when you're writing these stories or thinking about where does Chucky and Nika and Tiffany go next? Well, for any movie or even TV show, I mean, your goal is to satisfy people who are longtime fans but hopefully also satisfy newcomers. And so similarly, you know, each movie, you know, it's like the end of a TV season. You know, if you don't know if you're coming back, the finale ideally needs to function as a season ender, but potentially a series ender, like which happened with Brian, Brian Fuller on Hannibal. Right. You know, he had all, he has a whole very specific, idea of what season four would be and he had that in place but he also knew if if it doesn't happen this ending is beautiful and poetic and works right so i'm like i'm just mentioning that as you know that's kind of like i thought the way he handled that was perfect and so that's kind of what i always hope to do you know but you know it being the horror genre it's part and parcel to end with cliffhangers and have you know the little you know notion that the monster is not 
quite dead after all. So mm-hmm. I feel like that does work as, you know, if this story has to come to an end, it will still work. But I've been very lucky that I've gotten opportunities to just keep going the fuck on. Mm-hmm. I want to say ask one question. This is kind of going back to Bride, only because we mentioned retcons. But um, is and is there a reason we haven't seen a return of the heart of Dumbala? Um, let's see. I, I I'm not trying to trap you. I'm no 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 no. I'm literally just like sometimes there are things. It's like I have to think about it. It's like. Is there a reason? <laughs> it's like have we have we not seen it again? We saw it in Seed. You know, Glenn Glenn uses it in Seed. I feel like do we use it in season two of the show? <laughs> or uh, or it's like or is that like yeah? Anyway, um, I actually I actually know the answer to that question. <laughs> you may not have seen the end of the Heart of Dumbala. Okay. But no, it's not it's not Fair it's enough. it's it's not a conscious like like with Glenn Glenda. It's like they're banished. It's not like the heart of Dumbala is banished. It just <laughs> as a as a device, it just ceased to be useful anymore. I mean, because even that was you know, the heart of Dumbala is a bit of a retcon, obviously. Yes, right. <laughs> and I and I created that just because I needed a, a MacGuffin. You know, I needed a thing that the characters needed to get in order to cause the voyage, you know, the, the, the journey, because it's a road movie. I always chalked it up to like, because in the first three movies, you know, it's like, oh, he, he has to do the ritual before he is cemented in this doll and becomes like flesh and blood or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I always chalked it up to, oh, the heart of Dabala is only necessary after that has happened. <laughs> I love, I do love that fans, you know, invent these rules for themselves. In order- <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I used to do that, too. I mean, I think a good example is the Omen franchise. Because in the first movie, the rule is in order to kill Damien, you have to, he has to be stabbed with all seven of the daggers of Megiddo, and also that his blood has to spill on sacred ground, has to be on the altar of a church. Mm -hmm. They jettisoned that idea in Damien. In Damien, it's just the daggers. But William Holden, you know, as we're racing to the climax of that movie, he's luring Damien to the museum or whatever, the Thorn Museum or whatever it is, and he's going to kill him there. Now, I remember as a kid going, wait a minute, wait, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and so true. at the Come time, on. I just thought that was the point. It's like I'm thinking, oh, they're misinformed. Mm-hmm. They don't know. And I thought I literally thought it was going to be that he was going to stab him. And then you're, they were going to do the thing where they walk away from his body and then he stands up behind them or something. Mm-hmm. But no, it wasn't that. It was just that they didn't need that device for that movie. It, it was an encumbrance. Although, you know, you could have... It, it also, if you think about it, you think, oh, come on, you could have moved the action to a church sure. somehow. How hard would it have been? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but I, I think fandom, you know, wasn't as strong right. force or as interconnected a force at the time so nobody rose up to like decry this 
you know, inconsistency. Well, but I, I, th- I think again because we take the the series into more over the top territory. Like, I, it's never really like a sticking point for me with continuity with this particular franchise because it's so goofy and stuff. And again, you lampshade a lot of issues. You like, any any inconsistencies, you lampshade them. You're like, oh yeah, let's address that really quick and then move on. Yes. <laughs> okay, no, we can we can go back to Cole. I, just, I, I that was always my one question was the heart of Dumbo. I was like, well, I know we got Condit by saying we have to have this thing, but. <laughs> But I, I love the prop, you know. I love oh, yeah. the, I love the thing itself. I you know, it's a really cool prop. Oh, it looks great too. Yeah. With Colt, so yeah, we do the haunted house movie, the old dark house with Curse of Chucky. But with Colt, you go like insane asylum movie or mental institution movie, and it is white. It is mm-hmm. a very like different aesthetic for you. Uh, I'm a, I mean, I listened to your commentary last night, so I know it was very intentional. But what made you want to go? Like I mean, again, in all the subgenres of horror, what made you want to go into the mental asylum subgenre? Well, it's a subgenre that I love. I think I think it's really fun. And again, I knew that I basically needed to do another one setting story. And the narrative of the character Nika. That's where we left off with her in Curse. The idea that Chucky, as he often does, he framed her for the murders and she takes the fall and she Mm -hmm. ends up in the loony bin. So it made sense to pick up with the character there. Um, But, you know, it's a very different kind of movie than Curse of Chucky. And aesthetically, it's very different. And I just, again, this is my short attention span. I just, (laughs) I just want to do different shit. So Curse of Chucky you know, had a lot of darkness and shadow and chiaroscuro. And I just didn't want to do the same thing. So I said, like, okay, let's do the Kubrick shining thing where it's just horror under glaring bright lights and rectilinear, you know, everything's very linear and long corridors going at weird angles and stuff like that. That it, It was just an opportunity to you know, have a different kind of style. And I, I love style and I love, you know, different kinds. And I just, I, I was just interested to explore a different aesthetic and a different tone. Well, I think that's why too. I mean, like cult, is, it's not like my favorite entry in the franchise, but even watching it last night, I was a thing where I was like, and I know this is, makes sense but it's like it feels like your your hand in directing gets more confident and strong with each entry and cult feels the most playful and experimental in your directing style there's full of homages but also a lot of like signature touches like i mean there's a lot of de palma split split screen you very clearly love your split diopter shots but mm-hmm. it's, it's very fun to watch visually oh thanks yeah well that stuff is important to me and yeah i do have a lot of Really, what is essentially hand me down De Palma style <laughs> that I that I find it hard to resist. I remember I actually think De Palma said this in an interview once, where he said, or somebody I think it was De Palma said, the only you know it takes a while to develop your own style, and and it, that is something that I'm I'm conscious of, and I do sometimes worry that i trot out the split field diopter lenses too much no and this, but, this, so this, but i just like i love it you know i just like it's fun i i love it they are they're so good yeah i mean you, you I, I mean i know it wasn't you but even ronnie you does it in bride like i mean like I, honestly it almost feels like a trademark of the franchise by this no point. it totally it mm-hmm. totally is i mean and we did a couple in child's play too as well i mean everyone mm. you know we all you know generally you you know try to 
cast the movie in front of and behind the camera with people who share your sensibility. Right. And that certainly was the case with Ronnie Yu. That was why we wanted to hire him because, you know, he he was clearly into this kind of aesthetic. As he himself used to say delightedly on set, setting up some intricate, beautiful shot, he'd go, it's like a commercial for murder. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and I loved it. It was like literally it was early in the shoot of Ride of Chucky when we were doing that scene that introduces Tiffany when that mm. when the cop he's waiting uh, in his car. And that so was perfect. that was scripted as an exterior. But we found, you know, just looking at locations, we found this whatever it weird, was. I know it doesn't exist thing. in Toronto anymore. But yeah, but it, it, I guess it not a warehouse, but it also had those weird clear street windows way up there that so i forget what it was but it was awesome and i remember just you know coming onto the set and seeing how peter powell had lit it and it's very 90s you know just all mm -hmm. the light and that kind of blue tone to uh, everything we love blue in the 90s so oh, yes boy. we did <laughs> and i think that the photography in bride it really epitomizes that aesthetic i think it's a great example of that aesthetic i i mean i i love the look of bride of check um mm. this is like just my personal thing but um so when bride was coming out uh my family had just gotten our first like family computer and we were like shocked at the fact that we could watch videos on it and the first thing my dad ever showed me on that computer was the trailer for bride of chucky whenever it came out <laughs> and it's it's like choppy like pixelated glory on this windows 98 God. computer <laughs> it's the height of definition how all filmmakers want their art to be seen right <laughs> right <laughs> okay well you mentioned talent in front of the camera and we kind of jumped over it in our, our our race to get to cult. But I would love to know, how did Fiona Dourif come to be a part of this world? Because I think a lot of people are like, oh, OK, it totally makes sense. Obviously, her dad's involved, but she's become a huge asset to the entire franchise. And you've gone back to using her almost as much as Tilly. So how did that relationship come about? Really, it was just that she auditioned. And it really it was really, it was that casual, kind of, she, you know, by that point, she was working as an actor. And I, I didn't really know her at that point, although I had met her a few times over the years, you know, although she barely remembers it, you know, there were, <laughs> there were like four or five times, but she was a kid, you know, she was right. a kid, so she just didn't remember. But I remember having lunch with Brad one day and he said, oh, Fiona mentioned that she's uh, reading for the movie. I said, oh, really? What's she reading for? And Brad <laughs> said, oh, she's reading for the sister, because that's... She originally didn't read for the lead. Her oh. her agents had put her up for the character of the sister, Barbara, you know, who ended up um, mm -hmm. being played by Danielle. And her audition was really good, but I just, I thought like, ooh, I think she could play Mika. You know, cause there was just something about her, which I think, you know, pretty much everyone knows now because she's a very talented actress and she works a lot deservedly, but she just, she's really electric as a performer, mm -hmm. but she also has something, she has a, a few things that I consider to be specific assets to the horror genre. And one of them is that you, she is a 
person, she's an actor and that you believe supernatural things could happen to. And that's a very specific thing because in my opinion, some actors don't have that. Good, successful actors, but they're they're just of a different kind of vibe. Whereas Fiona, she has a particular kind of energy and I think even beauty and physiognomy that just she reminds me a little of Amy Irving, actually. And, you know, when I was being a De Palma fan, I was a huge fan of hers from Carrie and the Fury. Fury. And right. which is why in Curse of Chucky, I gave her that white nightgown. It's basically <laughs> a copy of Amy Irving's white nightgown from the Fury when she has that slow motion escape scene. Yeah. Um, so I believe supernatural things can happen to her. I also believed her in the wheelchair, and that's a very subtle thing. But, you know, I saw a lot of actors for the role, and I just didn't believe it. I ju it just felt like an actor pretending to be disabled. Whereas with Fiona, there's, I mean, I, we're such good friends now that I know exactly what's going on. But at the time, I'm just like, oh, this person has pain. You know, she, like, there's just some... You know, her homepage as an actor, that is something that she can bring that you, there's just, you believe the anguish that there's something, you know, that this person has been through something and she had that. So anyway, it was just this instinct that I had. And so I had her come back and read for Nika and she was amazing. And then I had to take like a day to kind of think about it and think, am I pursuing this for the right reasons? Am I, right. you know, cause like I, it wasn't, it wasn't a gimmick. It wasn't Brad flexing any muscle. It was just that she was the best person for the role. She's a great actress. And so I said like, let's do it. Let, you know, she's great. Let's do it. So that's, that's how that came to be. That's, I, I love that. And I'm actually glad that you, I'm, I'm, if you told that story before, I'm sorry, but like, that's awesome because I feel like there's so many cries about, you know, nepotism in the industry and stuff. And it's just like, but no, but like, I don't, even before you said that, I never got that from Fiona because yeah, she is kind of Nika to me. Like she fits that mm -hmm. role perfectly and she's so good. And especially once we get into cult and she starts doing Brad. Well, that, I mean, that was the oh, next man. thing. And one of the reasons I like to work with actors serially is it's fun to write for actors, you know. You know, and just like, because you can, like, it's fun to write to their strengths, but it's also fun to write to stuff that they haven't done before. And you think like, right. You know, she, in Curse of Chucky, she was the ingenue. You know, Nika is basically an ingenue, but just knowing her in real life. And, and of course there's her, the intense physical resemblance, the facial resemblance yeah. she has to her father, along with the fact that in real life, her laugh is Chucky's laugh. And that's right. just like, just, you know, just getting to know her. It's like, wait, wait, are you, are you, you know, like at first I thought like, oh, is she just mimicking Brad? But it's just the way <laughs> oh she laughs in real life. So like, between that and her physical resemblance and the fact that I intuited you would be a great villainess. You know, you would be a great bad guy. I just thought like, oh, we have to have you 
get possessed by Chucky because that's going right. to be awesome. How much fun. <laughs> but then it adds another element of queerness because then you have her in a relationship with Jennifer Tilly. And <laughs> it's just so bonkers. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it all gets increasingly incestuous. <laughs> well, and so because I mean, and you bring in, uh, you know, Alex Vincent to the, the post credit scene of Curse, and he's a main player in cult and you have Christina Lee's come back for cult as well. In the commentary, you mentioned that you had dis- uh, I don't know if you reached out to Alex or if he reached out to you via social media. But like, is that how like, you just said, hey, like, let me just reach out and see if he wants to do this? <laughs> We sort of got to know each other again, you know, as I mean, I was an adult when I first met him, but he was like a very young child. Right. Yes. But then, you know, and then I lost touch with him for years. And then with the advent of social media, you know, one of the great things about it, I mean, there are many evils, of course, but, Mm. you know, this goes back to when Facebook was popular. But, you know, the, the, the way you can have your past at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. So... I I just got to know him as a grown-up, and he was super cool and interesting. He's a really nice, interesting guy, and I was just sort of delighted by that. It's like, oh, he's really cool. And so in just be, you know, getting reacquainted again as peers now, I just, you know, I was like, you should come back. And he said, I would love to. That would be great. So yeah, that's happily that worked out. And he wasn't acting anymore, right? Correct. Man, that must, that must be fun, though. Yeah, I think he's really enjoyed it. And, um, and you know, and he, as you'll see in season two, he has a lot of fun new, new yeah. stuff to do. Well, and mm-hmm. so one thing that stuck out to me in your commentary for Colt was uh, that you mentioned like y- y'all, y- you and Tony and uh, uh, and uh, uh, David would go and like look at kind of fan reactions or like, you know, see what people were talking about in the Twitterverse and whatever. And one of them was people were so excited to see a scene between Andy and Tiffany. And you didn't have that in the script. <laughs> right. It was, yeah, it was Alex who first told me that. And I kind of went like, oops. So that's why, like, we were shooting, and I just sort of hastily wrote that phone call. So, you know, and I said, oh, split screen. You know, it's like, here's a great excuse for a split screen scene, because you want them. De Palma approves. Yeah, exactly. You want them to share the screen, even though it just didn't work out. They would be physically together. So, yeah, that that was really uh, fun to do. Can I ask some questions about the gore in this one? Because... I think that this film is well known among the fandom for introducing this kind of like splitting of the souls across all of the different Chucky dolls and into people, which produces a lot of fun, particularly in the last act. But then the other piece is like some of these kills. Mm -hmm. I feel like people are constantly surprised that you were able to do this on that direct to video budget. Like people went gaga for Claire's death where the skylight falls on her. I think in part because they thought, oh, my God, we're doing Bride of Chucky again. And it looks so gorgeous. Yeah, well, you know, I like putting in little Easter eggs for fans, you know, whether and, you know, to stuff outside the Chucky universe, usually and occasionally inside the Chucky universe. So I knew there were different iterations over different drafts of exactly how that character died. And I forget now exactly. One was electrocution. Oh, so you know it better. So I must have talked. So I talked about it. Right. That's right. You only mentioned electrocution. You said originally it was electrocution, but you felt like that had been done too many times. 
Well, yeah, I do tend to electrocute people a lot, and I, you know, and <laughs> I did because it's something I'm really scared of in real life. Because once as a child, it's like one of my earliest memories. I remember my, I think my parents were having some painting done in the house, and uh, the wall socket, you know, the plate was taken off. You know, mm-hmm. so it was just a hole, and I, I stuck my finger in there, and yep. and remember the f- bizarre feeling of the electric jolt. So it's it is something that scares me. Anyway, so yeah, I so it I think it was original like that. The sequence that I originally planned and storyboarded, we ended up not being able to afford it. Basically, so I had to okay. I had to do something else, kind of on the fly. And I was getting better at that sort of thing after having done Curse of Chucky because it, it was it was an important learning experience to make a movie for five million dollars in thirty days as opposed to twelve million dollars in sixty days. Yeah. Oof. So you know you have to be flexible, and that and the you know those lessons have served me well in TV as well because you mm-hmm. really have to be flexible. And sort of think on your feet. You're like, okay, we can't do that. We have to do something else. So I decided, okay, we'll homage ourselves because I always loved that kill in Bride of Chucky. Right. But I knew that this would have a different flavor because in Bride of Chucky, you're really seeing it through the doll's eyes and it's really their perspective. And this is a different thing. This is you're seeing it through the victim's eyes. And so the idea that she is incapacitated to the point of paralysis and sees her death coming at her. And I just thought that mm. the idea of it being beautiful and tragic, and this right. was after I had worked on Hannibal as well. So I think right. I, I was very influenced by working on that show and all of the beautiful, violent tableau that Brian mm. put into the show. And you reference Hannibal in the movie too. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes. And I remember, you know, Leafly telling Brian and Martha Delorentis, you know, you have like inviting them to the the screening and like, you go, oh, you're gonna love something, and uh, <laughs> and I think they were both kind of like, yeah, that was great. <laughs> so I mentioned that one of the other things folks like about this film is this introduction, this wrinkle in the mythology, which is that Chucky can now split his soul into multiple dolls, and it results in multiple Chucky dolls. I love how you visualize them so that they're mm. immediately identifiable and distinct. Like they're, they're all Chucky, but they have their own characteristics. But then we also get people taken over by Charles Lee Ray. And that is fascinating. And I need to know, how did this come about? Well, I had wanted to do multiple Chuckies for a long time and met resistance at every turn. Like budgetary or, or conceptually? Partly budgetary, but also partly conceptually. I think some people felt that, oh, it will, it will, you know, just as he's splintering his soul, it's going to dilute his impact somehow to be, you know. But I, I mean, part of the motivation really was, again, it's getting the opportunity to work with an actor of the stature and ability of Brad Dorif, you know, every few years. I want to give him new stuff to do. And a lot of it came out of that. I just thought it would be fun to see Brad perform subtle and sometimes not so subtle variations on the Chucky persona. One thing I can say, because this isn't really a spoiler, we do more of that in season two of the show. Right. Can see. (laughs) Right. 
so, but then at the same time, there, you know, have, having Fiona do it, it was really with, with Cult, it was the start of like sort of taking apart the Chucky persona. There's something interesting about different actors trying it on for size. And even in season one of the show, we have two versions of young Charles Lee Ray. Right. I don't know if you've ever, if you ever saw it on my social media last year. I have this really funny video that I shot of Fiona teaching um, Tyler Barish, who's the young actor who played fourteen year old Charles Lee Ray, teaching him the Chucky cackle. Oh no! <laughs> so there, I don't know. I just uh, creatively, I just find it interesting. It just to t- you know to take a monster who is now his character is quite iconic. His voice is iconic. His mannerisms are iconic. His sense of humor. I mean, I feel as I'm saying that, I feel like that sounds so self-aggrandizing. And I don't don't mean it to, because I think Brad gets by far the lion's share of the credit for that. But I just find it interesting to look at it through different lenses, you know, through the lens of his own flesh and blood with Fiona in Fiona's case, or let's have this actor try it on for size. And what's that going to look like? It's just interesting because the reason it's interesting to explore is because the character is iconic. I mean, wouldn't you, for example, be interested to see, I'm being utterly random, Sharon Stone play Homer Simpson? (laughs) I mean, I would be into seeing that, you know, (laughs) Well, I mean, more Sharon Stone than anything, really. Where she needs to come back. Yeah. Well, we have thoughts on Sharon Stone. <laughs> hey, if, you know, Sharon Stone, if you're listening, consider yourself. You have an open invitation to come on Chucky. I mean, you've got so many guest stars on season two now that are like these fun reunions. So m- why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I would love that. I would so. Love yeah. that. Okay, so so okay, so we've talked about you know how we're switching from theatrical to direct to DVD with this franchise, but now we are switching from direct to DVD to television. And mm-hmm. Cult of Chucky comes out October of 2017. On the commentary, you still talk about as if we're going to get another a, a potential next film installment. The TV show gets announced about five months later. So. I guess, how was your reaction to that? Or how did this come about? And I feel like, again, this is a case where expectations are being lowered because we're like, oh, we went from theatrical to direct-to-video to TV. Well, it was really working on Hannibal that made me start to think about it for the mm-hmm. first time. Because, I, I, I mean, I had, worked, I had written that episode of Tales from the Crypt for HBO that I mentioned, um, or co-written, rather. Yeah because I did a rewrite on an existing draft. But um, other than that, I had never worked in TV before Hannibal. I was a, I've been a massive fan of the Hannibal franchise books and movies from the beginning. I, I mean, I was a fan of Thomas Harris's as a kid. I read Black Sunday, you know, his first oh, novel, wow. and was really into that. Um, and then I've been friends with the De Laurentiis family for going on 40 years. I mean, ever, almost since I first came to Hollywood and I've, I've worked for Dino and Martha a couple of times and I worked with, for Raffaella a couple of times and they're the sort of people who, and partly it's because they're Italian, I'm sure. <laughs> and I think I probably tried to pattern some of my work habits off of things I learned from them. And one of the things they do, it's like when you're in, you're in, you know, and then right. they, and, and you're just part of that family 
and it was really it's a really kind of wonderful experience that and anyway you know they controlled the Hannibal franchise so Martha before the show it's like when they were producing Hannibal Rising and you know they they showed me an early draft of the book you know and it's like so I often had like an inside scoop on Hannibal and it's like oh my god this is so great <laughs> and then, you know, of course, it became a TV show. And I I didn't know Brian at that point, although we followed each other on Twitter or whatever. Right. You know, where as everyone people, does. Yes, as everyone does. <laughs> you know, but, you know, being part of, you know, gay horror in Hollywood, you know, your right. paths eventually mm-hmm. cross. But I was, you know, I was such a fan of the franchise. I was initially skeptical. How are they going to do this as a TV show? How how can it not be Anthony Hopkins? And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is how. This is how. And the way he gave up that franchise, I found oh so yes. so awesome. So I I coincidentally knew someone who worked on the crew in Toronto, and I was in the habit of talking to him a lot about the show. And I would say, like, oh, I love last night's episode. And I would say, are you guys going to have Mason and Margot Verger on? And, and so finally that evolved to my friend. His name is Michael Kessler. He said, Don, you should be writing on this show. Uh, and I was like, well, how would that happen? How could that – don't be silly. And he goes, you should, you, should, he goes you should just reach out to Brian. And I said, right. ah, that would be so pushy. And he goes, no, you should do it. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Had a couple of glasses of wine. Sent yeah, an email. And so I just wrote, I just wrote him an email, and I, you know, said, I like, I'm a Hannibal fanatic, and this is something that in my personal life can sometimes weird people out. But I think my my sort of photographic knowledge of all things Hannibal might come in handy to you. And so he said, so much to my, I didn't think anything would come of that, Um, (laughs) but to my surprise, he reached out and said, let's have lunch. And we did. And he goes, let's do it. And I went, really? It's that easy? Yes, it was, it was the most, it was thrilling. It was so thrilling. And it, to this day, it, it is one of my favorite jobs I've ever had in this business. I loved it. And I loved it. The writers' room experience. I, it was it was kind of like so. Let me get this straight. We we come every day to work. We we sit at a table with seven or eight like-minded horror geeks and specifically Ugh. Hannibal geeks. We mm-hmm. talk about Hannibal all day and we get paid for it. I would right. do this for free, <laughs> <laughs> but it's better that you pay me. <laughs> right, but it was but doing that that made me think like oh if i could harness that kind of energy of chucky fans like like like-minded chucky fans who are writers because another thing about working on hannibal that was really eye-opening for me was holy shit these writers are amazing they are such great writers there are so many good writers in television and i just didn't know because i had no experience in tv mm-hmm. and i love i just loved the writers room experience and i felt that after 30 years or whatever with chucky i just felt like bring in some fresh perspective on it from people who truly love it that mm-hmm. could help elevate this 
And it's the same with the directors as well. And, you know, I learn from all of these people, you know, the directors, my fellow writers, my fellow directors. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons the show has been successful is that it's, there are a lot of smart, talented people helping make this a success, you know, yeah. and they, and they all love it. They love Chucky just as we all loved Hannibal. So it was really working on Hannibal that made me start thinking about it. And, and I met Nick Antosca. This is so funny because it's such a weird coincidence. I met Nick first before any of this. I met him through Fiona because they oh, were really? friends. Okay. And yeah. And they had dated years ago. So, so they knew, so they knew each other and she had introduced him to me and we became friends. And then just coincidentally, we ended up in the Hannibal writers room together right. and, you know, and, and Nick is an amazing writer. So then he invited me to co-write with him at Fox after we worked on Hannibal together. He invited me to co-write with him a pilot for the Fury because he knew oh, that I was a God. fanatic for the Fury. So we did that together and it didn't go forward, but it was, you know, it was it was a great experience. And then Channel Zero got the go-ahead. And so right. he had his first right. gig as a showrunner and he asked me if I wanted to work for him on that. And I said, Hell yeah. And so I had been talking about this with him. And of course, being such a talented um, writer and showrunner, I just thought like, let's, I went to him first and I, and we had the same agent and everything. So I said, would you be interested in, in helping me do this as a TV show? And he said, yeah. Anyway, I feel maybe I got off topic there. No, 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 no. not at You're all. You're good. <laughs> but with Cult of Chucky... I, even while doing the movie, I had hopes, specific hopes of setting up the TV series with Cult. That's why I ended that movie with so many cliffhangers. Because I knew that the t a TV series would be the ideal way to follow up on all those different story threads. When I first watched Cult, because I, I, I got it like the day it came out, because I was like, fuck yeah, like let's see where this goes. I was simultaneously excited and so pissed off by the ending of cult of chucky because i was like what what if we don't get another one of these don yeah, mancini what, the <laughs> what the how fuck are you doing you? how dare you sir <laughs> well i mean there there is always that you know possibility but um we've been really lucky that we keep getting to forge ahead <laughs> mm -hmm. until they pry it from our dying hands well okay so here's the thing, because as Trace mentioned, you know, okay, we're shifting into TV and people really didn't know what to make of this. You know, unfortunately, we're still living in this day and age where we see sci-fi and it's the home of Sharknado and a bunch of like this plus that terrorizing a town with really bad computer graphics. Yeah. So I think people were worried that this was going to be diluting the brand. And then the first season comes out and all of a sudden it's the only thing people are talking yes. about. Like people were so surprised, but I think it's because we all have such a reverence and we love the franchise so much that we were just really afraid it wasn't going to be as good. And I feel like a lot of people were just like, oh, we should have fucking trusted Don because he clearly <laughs> knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I hope people, including you guys, continue to think that. Uh, after season two <laughs> <laughs> well and let's not let's not understate the fact that again we're continuing the franchise's line of queerness and you've got a queer team lead in this role yeah just, i mean it was you know i've just 
sort of thrown caution to the winds although honestly the culture has caught up with us and it, you know with bride and with seed there were some issues you know moving ahead with queer content but by the time we got to this you know they were completely on board because i just i i just thought I, I knew I wanted to have a YA element to it because that was another mm -hmm. thing. It was an, a, like a new flavor for the franchise because we'd never really done that before. And right. so I knew going into it, I just, I just, and also just generally as a writer, I was just wanting, for whatever reason, maybe it's my age, I was just wanting to write more about myself specifically mm -hmm. than I had before. And I just thought, like, well, why not? Here's an opportunity to do that. And, and because, in the zeitgeist there was you know this we knew that using chucky as a metaphor for bullying was a big idea that it was right. a strong idea and could work really well yeah so it, i am very happy one of my my proudest things about the first season of the show is that gay not just gay audiences but all i think all of the chucky audience really loves jevin you know they really love that couple <laughs> that jake and devin right because <laughs> i wanted I, I really wanted to portray a very you know just a, a sweet sweet mm -hmm. love story you know a young love story a puppy love story but to do it with two gay boys yeah right and again, the culture has caught up with us and we, you know, it's not just Chucky that's doing that. A lot of, a lot of shows and movies are doing that now, but it's, but, it's fun to be able to, to keep finding ways of injecting queer content into the show. Well, but I mean, it's also, I mean, like, you're right. The culture has caught up with you and we are seeing a lot of this more in mainstream uh, media, but you're also, I mean, again, Chucky's one of the big four slashers for me alongside, you know, Michael, Freddy, Jason. And you've gone through this just enormous transition from 88 to 2022. And you, I, I, I'm 33 years old. And the the episode where Jake and Devin finally kiss, it was like, oh my God, it, it was the most unreal. So well, it's also like, you know, uh, this YA component, you know, we have queer YA stories, but we don't have these queer YA in horror stories like, mm -hmm. it's, it's it's something i haven't really seen before and again like that kiss i was just like i i wish my 14 year old self could have seen this episode you know 20 years ago well exactly and that's exactly how i felt about it and that's what i was i wanted to accomplish with it i i mean i remember the day we were shooting that scene you know, and there was, you know, there was some nervousness, a nervous energy going around, as you can imagine. So the the two actors, the boys, um, Zach and Bjorgvin, they like they came to me like during lunch because we were, you know, because we had to wait for the sun to go down a little bit before right, we yes. shot that scene. And so we were talking, and they said. They asked me, was this your first kiss? Is this a reenactment of your first kiss? Oh. And I said, no, it, it's the first kiss I wish I could have had. And, yes. it, and what we want it to be is the first kiss that, you know, gay boys can see that they can have. And, and, they, and they got that immediately. And they went, oh, that's so cool. My God, the youth, they're going to save us after all. Yeah, but they really got that. And they knew that... They wanted it to be good for those reasons. They knew it was a mitzvah. 
So speaking about the the queerness, I think there were a bunch of people who maybe skipped seed because they heard that it wasn't that good or it was campy, or they maybe skipped some of the the direct to video sequels. So for some folks, I think Chucky's acceptance of this Ooh. I mean he's He's nothing if not a master manipulator, so he's also looking for opportunities to get what he wants, and that's a fun other piece of this first season. But I think a lot of people were surprised that Chucky ended up being progressive or <laughs> fucking scare quotes woke. Well, but it's that line, right, where he's like, I'm not a monster, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like a lot of people have that experience with, you know, their parents a lot of times. <clears throat> Their parents are initially, you know, horrified, but, you know, some of them, sometimes they do come around. And I just felt like, and, and that, you know, that's, that is a not uncommon path for some people that they just, they're just not experienced with it, or they think they're not experienced with gay people in their lives or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so as we kind of wrap this up then, so why don't we move into season two? I know obviously we're not going to give out any spoilers, but what, what do you want to say or what can you say about season two uh, in advance of its release? And bear in mind, this episode will drop a week before season two premieres. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do with season two was continue to follow that relationship that romance between those boys and so that that's a big part of the show and as you know already from the first trailer the setting is a you know catholic reform school right <laughs> so you know this time we're plugging chucky into this you know the subgenre of you know catholic religious horror Oh, you know, man. like the exorcist, <laughs> the omen, that kind of thing. So, right. you know, Chucky with priests and nuns and confession, but also homophobia, institutionalized right. homophobia. I thought that that was an interesting um, conflict to put in in front of those characters and that relationship. Because that's, again, it's a little bit autobiographical. It's something that I dealt with as a young gay kid who was raised Catholic. Well, I think it might draw comparisons to Child's Play 3 because it has the military school setting. And I know with that one, you know, you were rushed to write that screenplay. So uh, uh, did you consider this almost kind of like a like a redo of, of that? Again, I know it's not the same setting, but like this kind of like right-wing militant school setting. Yeah, I mean, I was aware of the similarities. You know, it's a educational institution for teenagers that has this conservative, repressive authority. And that sort of setting works well for Chucky because what? Chucky is often about, you know, subverting the status quo and going after authority figures and mm -hmm. puncturing sacred cows and stuff like that. So, but in along with that, just the trappings of that subgenre, I love. The, the mm -hmm. Omen, I love the Omen. I love the Exorcist. And to bring you know some of that stuff into the Chucky franchise again I hope is it's you know a way of keeping it fresh yeah that's a big part of it but it, it I, I mean I was really starting with the boys relationship oh yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mean that as a you're just redoing it again I, I didn't mean that as that kind of a question <laughs> no I didn't I didn't take it that way I'm, I'm just like uh describing what led me into the Catholic school was just like, oh, that would be an interesting place for two 
15 year old gay boys who love each other to find themselves in that place and end up as roommates oh like they do in all the conversion camps where they put everyone in the same room (laughs) right sexy sleepovers yeah So I have a question because the first season spent a bunch of time introducing the kids in the first half. And then we slowly started adding some of our legacy characters. And at times it it almost felt like we were losing sight or there was a it was a delicate balancing act between the two storylines and how to integrate both of them in. How do you negotiate that? this season knowing that we're also bringing back glenn glenda well you know it's it's always it it is always a balancing act it's always you know juggling balls and and trying to you see you know what you try to do is you you try to weave everything together with some thematic coherence you know so that different storylines you know are bonded by the same issues and the characters of Glenn and Glenda are going through some similar issues as the characters from, you know, that were introduced during season one of the show. And a lot of it is about, you know, tracking. I think this is also a structure that I just tend to like in stories and, and TV is a a good medium for this is tracking different storylines and bringing them together toward the end of the season so i mean that's the basic methodology so but yeah juggling all of that and making it feel balanced it's always a challenge definitely but i think it's also a thing where the franchise and i I use the word messy in a very like is a compliment it's like a fun mess where it's like it's never messy in the point where it's like you're not really enjoying the show it's like reveling in its messiness in a way well i think i just think the different tonal flavors are right, interesting. Right. You know, and that I think again, the kids occupy this more emotionally grounded aspect of the story. And, you know, the performances are more naturalistic and the stakes are more real. And then you have <laughs> Tiffany, who is always <laughs> over the top. So with the TV show, it's interesting to go back and forth because I, to, you know, as for me as a viewer, I, I find that, you know, that infuses energy into it. I like that. Right. And then I like to see what happens when you bring the flavors together. Because it's like, you know, having a scene with Fiona Doroff and Jennifer Tilly, to me, that's inherently interesting because they're such different performers and the right. characters are very different. I mean, Nika was created, again, in Curse of Chucky, Nika was the Jake and Devin in a way. You know, the naturalistic right. character who is helping the the story touch the ground. And, and, and so there, there are some genuine emotional stakes going on. Mm-hmm. She's not that anymore. <laughs> well, she is when she's just Nika. What, but what's interesting, though, as we were working on the season... In the writer's room, one of the things we found is that we realized that Glenn and Glenda were going to be crucial to grounding everything. And that didn't occur to me at first, because you think about Glenn and Glenda, I mean, these are characters who were, you know, like Damien being born of a jackal. They were born of a killer doll. They Mm -hmm. were a doll. Um, Now they're human beings. How does that work? Um, it, you know, on the face of it, it's as crazy as any of the craziest stuff in the franchise. And yet we use them as the grounded characters in that storyline. 
through like, which wow. through which the the naturalistic emotionally grounded prism through which to watch the antics of their crazy mom and dad who happens to be a doll <laughs> of course well i guess because yeah because the thing the whole end of seat of chucky is you know you have glenn glinda but then they do become two separate characters which i'm assuming is what we are getting in this next season yeah which i think is a very interesting avenue to take and i know we probably can't discuss too much more of it because obviously we haven't seen these characters since seat of chucky and we don't know what's going to happen in season two yet, but um, mm-hmm. I just I, I think that's such a fun, exciting way to take these characters. And Lachlan Watson is amazing in both so in both roles. It was really really exciting to work with them, and they just brought such energy and again a real emotional commitment to it. I mean, the, these characters, Lachlan plays them very real, and it's very and I think people might be surprised by that. I'm curious, Don, can you talk a little bit about the casting specifically for Lachlan and maybe more broadly speaking, some of the responsibility with this role? Because I feel like we're living in a current political moment that is not particularly open to trans people, to non-binary people, to queers and women in general. But I think a lot of people have very high hopes for the return of this character because it meant a significant thing to people when Seed of Chucky was rediscovered and reappropriated, particularly by queer people. All of us, me and my fellow writers, fellow directors, the actors, we all felt a big sense of responsibility to do this well, you know, and to honor the trans experience in our own specific weird ass horror way you know (laughs) there's a weird ass horror metaphor for the trans experience so casting Lachlan I had met Lachlan on a panel a couple of years ago that we did for queer horror and you know I had only seen a couple of episodes of their show so I wasn't super familiar with them but I really liked them a lot when we did the panel together and we kind of hit it off and kept in touch so when it came time to cast the role, I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't allowed to, nor would I ever really be allowed to just, you know, offer it to anyone outright. You know, there, mm-hmm, you know, right. the studio has to approve, the network has to approve. So there was sure. a sort of traditional audition process, but I always knew that Lachlan would be a part of that. And, mm-hmm. and as I predicted, Lachlan's audition just blew everyone away. Oh, that's awesome. So I don't know if there's anything else that you can tell us or tease us about season two, but maybe what would your sales pitch be for folks who have been stupidly waffling on not jumping on board the show? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> why, why are you so stupid? Um, smarten up. Do you not realize the show was nominated for a bunch of awards? <laughs> right, yeah, I mean it's been, it's been thrilling, you know, because you work you work just as hard on the Child's Play threes and Seed of Chucky's as you do on you know season one. So it's just nice when people like it. But I'm not sure what more I can say than I have already said. You know, the yeah. Catholic school setting. You know, now plugging Chucky into the subgenre of Catholic horror like The Omen, The Exorcist. Uh, the evolution of of the of this relationship, the J- Jake Devon relationship, it, you know, you're going to see you know more of that, and what and it's not necessarily always an easy ride, you know, and it's always important to to 
keep the metaphor front and center, even though they're in a crazy situation battling a killer doll or dolls, plural, it always has to ideally function as a metaphor for a, a more hopefully universal queer experience. Um, right. You know, which is, that's where the Catholic school setting came in handy. So I think, I think people will like that. I think that people will find it interesting to see what happens to that relationship when it is put under this kind of the pressure of not only, Oh, are we going to get killed by Chucky? But like I'm being officially told that the person I am and that the person I love are wrong. What happens to a, a relationship and to an individual in the face of that opposition? And I think that it is timely. So, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> They can expect those stupid people can expect that. <laughs> well, my sales pitch for this would be is, is if it's anything like the first season or anything like the, any of the seven films in the franchise, it's fucking fun and just come and have a good time. Well, and that and also from our perspective, it's fucking queer. Like that is one <laughs> of the things that I so enjoy about this whole franchise is that you have always been looking to push the boundaries and change the definition of what a Chucky or a child's play film is or TV show. But you have always made it super fucking queer. And I just so appreciate that as a queer viewer and somebody who has really respected your career and your longevity in the industry. It's just really refreshing that you haven't shied away from that aspect. Well, thank you so much. I'm thrilled that it has landed well for you. <laughs> Um, well, and for other, you know, other, the general gay audience, it, it means a lot to me. And again, I just, I feel fortunate that I'm, you know, I'm very supported by the whole team and the network and the studio. They're, they're very into supporting the queer content. And that's, and that's been great. You know, I feel very lucky. How refreshing. <laughs> very refreshing and inspirational, honestly. I mean, again, like at the risk of like, you know, stroking you off a little bit more it's just like it, it, it is inspiring it is, it is very nice <laughs> to, to have this and thank you so much for coming on to this episode to talk about this with us oh i, I, had, a, I had a blast thank you so much for having me <laughs> we do have one final question done it's a it's an easy volley one but we just have to ask so we were wondering do you have any plans to ever bring katherine hicks back as andy's mom because we miss her oh yeah i would love to uh, I, you know, never rule it out as a possibility. So yes, there, there is that possibility and it's something I would really like to do. I, I really, I, I don't know her well, but you know, I, I saw her last at the convention three or four years ago, something like that. And she's always super nice to me. And I loved her in the first movie. I thought she was great. I mean, I, <laughs> I wanted to have her back in Child's Play 2, but it was a decision made above my head not to, right. I, you know, a, an economic decision, I'm sure. But she did, you know, because by that time she was married to Kevin Yeager. So yep. she was still around. <sighs> they met on Child's Play 1, Child's as Play. I'm sure you know. So she, she was around. And I know that, you know, Alex, you know, is in touch with her from time to time. So it is is something I would love to do. I, I would love to have Chris Sarandon in it too. 
Oh, I'm, yes, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also mean, big fans of his. <laughs> nevertheless, I'm, because I know we get the end of Curse, you know, we have uh, the post credit scene with Andy and he's talking to his mother. So at least we know she's not still in the loony band like she is in part two. But there we go. it's always been a question on my mind where I've been like, oh, I just I want more of that character sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say Catherine Heigl. Oh, I mean, that could be fun, too, for sure. Uh, well, because uh, honestly, as someone who I mean, I, I, as someone who has been I. Uh, I, I'm going to say unfairly maligned by by the industry and viewers because of, you know, candid comments she had made about Grey's Anatomy. I would always welcome that character back into this franchise. Also, just to see Catherine Heigl let cut loose a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that she would be interested in it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I'd be for it. We certainly, I, I loved working with her even back then. And that was really before she was Catherine Heigl. Right. She was great and obviously incredibly talented. And one thing that was really interesting was even then, and this was 1998, I think she was 19, she had a very specific goal of wanting to be a romantic comedy queen. That that was like something she specifically wanted. Yeah. Well, I I know. And like, because she was in Valentine and she made some not so great comments about being in that movie, but I've never heard her say anything bad about Bride of Chucky. So oh, I think- oh, she has. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, she has. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, it's join the club, right? I mean, she eventually gets around to bad mouthing all of us, everyone she works with. No, she, um, it did, and it hurt my feelings. She was on Letterman once. And, you know, this was at the height of her Grey's Anatomy success, Uh, I think, just following her Emmy and stuff. I, you know, so she was on the show and he, you know, I I don't know if he blindsided her because I, you know, I think no one is ever blindsided on those shows. I think they know exactly what is going to happen and what they're going to say. So at one point he said, well, your Grey's Anatomy fans may not be aware that you also, you know, were in this other movie, you know, Bride of Chucky. And, you know, they showed a little clip and then she made some comment to him like, well, sometimes you just have to pay the rent. Uh, And I I kind of went, oh, oh, Katie. It's always so easy to punch down on horror. I I feel like people ultimately end up regretting it, particularly when you start to realize the kind of career you can A, have from working in horror. But even like as you get a little bit older and maybe those plum rolls aren't coming, you can do the convention circuit and you will always have fans from horror films. Again, I mean, this is, I think, just a bit of a tick with her. You know, yeah. that she just badmouths a lot of projects. I, 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 don't, I, I didn't understand why, because the movie was successful. Right. She got good reviews and it helped her career. You know, so I, like, I didn't quite understand why she right. said that. And I don't know if maybe I was unaware. Did she have a bad experience? I wasn't aware of that at the time. I, I thought she mostly had a good experience. But maybe there was something else going on that I was unaware of. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that period of like, what, 07 to 2013? It was a... Uh, it was rough. Yeah, it was a tabloid era for her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But what you're saying is you're open to mending bridges. So Absolutely, Chucky's yes. <laughs> if, she, if she wanted to be on the show, are you kidding? I mean, I don't like, I kind of get it in a way. You know, I, I can, I can if, if indeed he did blindside her, and I don't know if he did. I don't know. Maybe that is the most memorable thing to say in that moment. Because I think that sometimes actors, 
that is their role, you know, particularly in that format, that context of a talk show. You know, you want to be funny. You want to be in the moment. And, you know, right. maybe that was just a memorable thing to say. But, it, you know, it did hurt our feelings. No, because you're right. You know, it's a film that you're proud of. And it's just a thing where it's like, you know, maybe she had maybe she had a good time. And it maybe wasn't like maybe it's a fine experience. But yeah, in the moment, she was like, I, I, people expect me to say something disparaging disparaging about this movie i guess especially because she had reached such a pinnacle of success at that point mm-hmm. yeah. and you know let's not forget she was she was young she was indeed well mm. on that note <laughs> <laughs> on that note come back Catherine. please come back there we go <laughs> Well, Don, again, I just want to say, both Joe and I want to say thank you again for coming on to this. Thank and you. Honestly, I, so let, let our listeners know, you know, where can they find you on social media if they want to reach out to you um, or even the, the show itself? Um, on Twitter, on Instagram, my you know, my handle is real Don Mancini on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, and if you want to stay informed about the show, just keep abreast of Jennifer's. Uh, you know because she's a never-ending font of photos and information and um Mm -hmm. she already spoiled that kyle is alive in one of her instagram stories yeah (laughs) yeah she's like baby put the phone down yeah (laughs) Uh, but you know a bit a big source of information for chucky fans no doubt but yeah i'm and i'm on facebook too (laughs) i'm sure like none of your listeners is (laughs) <laughs> and of course you can always uh follow the the show's official handle if you ever want to get insulted or just watch it you know interact with devon sawa because they have really funny exchanges yes and if for some reason you missed the first ha- part of this episode again season two of chucky october 5th season premiere be there or there we go don't be stupid um <laughs> All right, well, let me just close this out here then. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Keep track of all of our films on Letterboxd. Uh, Watch us on YouTube as we interview. We'll do more interviews with people in the horror industry. (laughs) Um, If you want to chat with our listeners, join our Facebook HorrorQueers group, because we actually do still do stuff on Facebook. Um, If you want to show us some love, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And this is uh, the end of September for us, so uh, if you want to subscribe to our Patreon, show us some love, go to patreon.com slash horrorqueers, and you can listen to our episodes on our favorite horror movie sequences and non-horror movies, the social media slasher Sissy, the horror prequel double feature You Didn't Know You Needed, and Ty West Pearl and Orphan First Kill, and an audio commentary on Wishmaster just in time for its 25th anniversary. But Joe... Mm-hmm. What are we covering next week? Because we've kind of teased it a little bit already. <laughs> this is true. That mention of Sharon Stone wasn't, you know, innocuous. We were planting the seed. Oh, and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to dip our toes into some erotic thriller territory. We're going to kick off October with Basic Instinct. Ooh, I so... love the Basic Instinct. <laughs> so good. We have so so talk about a film too controversial for its queerness at the time we have lots of things to say about misogyny and biphobia and homophobia so please be sure to check that out next week Mm -hmm. but until then we can well thank you again don and we can cross out (laughs) the child's play extravaganza thank you so much for having me and uh yeah so cross out horror queers (laughs) 
Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 